Heads up, this podcast has some swearing in it. This is an ABC podcast. So today's episode of Schmeitgeist is all about pop music. And where better to begin than at a gig? It's a Wednesday night in Sydney in the middle of winter and Schmeitgeist producer Grant Walter and I are seeing Youngblood. Now, Youngblood is an emo look, pop punk slash hip hop artist. And if that feels like a lot of adjectives, then you should know that we were holding back. Because in 2022, that's pop for you. The dividing walls between genres have all but collapsed. Or to be more specific, pop has bled out into every other corner of music. And at this show, there are no guilty pleasures. What's the cringiest thing you listen to? Probably BTS. <laughs> oh, no, that's pretty bad. It's Cardi B. A <laughs> little bit of WAP. Death metal. Like extreme, like... Yeah. I listen to Harry Styles. And Ariana Grande. And Ariana Grande. So this is very different for me. One Direction. <laughs> Harry Styles. The Glee band. soundtrack. Oh, Glee soundtrack. The Glee soundtrack. It's always on my, like, Spotify end, end of you rap, rap. Yeah. like, at the bottom. Oh, or the sex, uh, Shrek soundtrack. <laughs> Probably some like weird Russian EDM or like jazz. I'm Angela Wapier, and this is Schmeitgeist, the pop culture podcast from ABC Everyday about why we love what we love. And this is one of the less controversial things I will say on this podcast, but we do love pop music. And when I say we, I mean everyone, like small children, scenesters, investment bankers, capital F feminists, dads in the suburbs, your grandma. Maybe you're still working on your grandma, but you get the point. You get the point. The thing is, it wasn't always this way. This way. Pop used to be derided as vapid, vapid. Commercial, commercial, inauthentic trash. trash. Something for teenage girls to be embarrassed about and the butt of everyone else's joke. Joke? So what changed? what changed? And is there such a thing as too much pop? Today on Schmeitgeist, we want to know how pop went from guilty pleasure to chimera and took over the music industry. So I grew up as a little Triple J-obsessed kid in Bathurst in regional New South Wales at a time when pop absolutely was not cool. And so, somewhat predictably maybe, I was anti-pop for a long time. Like, not always, because I did grow up loving Y2K pop. The Spice Girls and Britney, Mariah Carey, the later Madonna albums. I don't know if anyone else remembers Bewitched, but I do. And then I sort of grew out of it. Or more accurately, I was shamed out of it. I was given the distinct impression that this music was for kids, specifically little girls. Enter Radiohead, Silverchair, The White Stripes, The Vines, a conga line of men with guitars, basically. It was the age of genre tribalism, and I was a rock kid. But if you're at the age now where you're getting into music, it's not really possible to be anti-pop. I mean, I guess it's technically possible, but you would be hard-pressed to find any new music to listen to. Because right now, pop is cooler than it ever has been. 
pop's always having a moment, but I think especially now. Shah D'Souza is a music critic who has written extensively on pop for everyone from Pitchfork to the Saturday paper. And he's the first person I spoke to to try to find out how it is that this one genre took over so completely. It's a tricky one, right? Because I think pop is is always dominating the charts. I mean, you go back 10 years and you've got Taylor Swift and Katy Perry and all those kinds of artists. And 10 years before that, you've got Britney, Justin, and so on. I'm so glad you mentioned Y2K artists. I wanted to go back to that time. Firstly, what did pop music sound like then? Like, what were the key characteristics of it? Um, I think pop was definitely a little more saccharine. I think it was very based around boy bands and girl groups and this almost kind of like clash of of like juvenile aesthetics with kind of like brazen sexuality. And so I think there's something very kind of heady and weird about that mix that naturally lends itself to kind of an inbuilt sense of cringe, even though it was so successful and it was so beloved and people still love those artists and, and that era is so iconic. But I think definitely there was something almost unnerving about the aesthetics and sound of that era that made it very easy to kind of dismiss because it's kind of like, well, what do you do with this? How much of that uh, legacy shame that I still feel, that like trace of shame when I mention the Spice Girls or Britney, how much of that is to do with the critical and establishment view of it at the time? Like, what was that like? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Even like talking about the Spice Girls, for example, they obviously were kind of like critically derided in their time, but also they had big champions and they had a lot of people talking about what they were doing as as being kind of quite interesting and occasionally a little subversive because, of course, they were kind of like renegades and did things a very, very strange way and basically had no musical talent but kind of like forged ahead anyway. A lot of critics didn't take that music super seriously, but some people did. And so I think it was more about an overall cultural attitude that maybe was more inclined to dismiss pop music simply because, I mean, like, it was very blatantly marketed at teenagers, you know? And it was very blatantly music that was used to kind of sell things and everyone was just coming off the 90s, this kind of, like, grunge era. Kurt Cobain wearing the corporate magazine Still Suck t-shirt. People were very sceptical about anything that was openly branded and openly commercial. And so I think you've got this real cocktail of kind of like different levels of, of people feeling very sceptical of that, of that kind of thing at that time. Okay, so it was partly critics keeping pop relegated as a guilty pleasure, but it was also a larger cultural mood. And let's not forget a culture that took women less seriously as artists. After all, we are now about 20 years further down the track with feminist discourse. And this was very much the era of something called rockism. There's these two terms that kind of haunt music critics to this day, rockism and poptimism. Poptimism was something that people started talking about in the the 2000s. It's very much this idea that critics should embrace kind of like mainstream popular music, should embrace chart music. And then rockism, on the other hand, is a term you use to kind of describe like, like a rockist critic is someone who kind of doesn't view pop music as something worth their time or something valuable. And there's been kind of like endless 
column inches dedicated to these two topics and whether they exist and whether they're valid and what we need to do about them. But yeah, they're, they're two terms that do kind of help when thinking about the context in which critical establishments saw pop music in the, in the 2000s. So poptimism, this rethink of pop music, entered the conversation in small ways in the early 2000s, mainly in industry and critic circles. But it took a while to achieve major change. So I asked Shard to take us through some of the big moments along the way. It's like hundreds of tiny little turning points. So off the top of my head, there are a few that really stick out in my mind, kind of from the early 2000s all the way to now. Maybe around 2003 or 2004, indie blogs like Pitchfork start taking more alternative pop music quite seriously. There's a song by Annie called Heartbeat that they named like the number one song of the year in 2004 or something. I think that was seen as quite a big moment. A few years later, Justin Timberlake releases Future Sex Love Sounds, which is kind of quite well received, gets really, really great reviews from critics. And then I think as you get into the 2010s, you see Taylor Swift emerge as this pop figure that that is truly undeniable, like one of these pop megastars that it's kind of very hard for people not to take seriously. And I think specifically her albums Red and 1989 mark this kind of shift in the critical establishment where it's just like, it became impossible that you, you kind of couldn't appreciate the kind of like craft and craftsmanship in, in this music. Around the release of 1989, I was in high school at that point and I felt this kind of big change. It really sticks in my mind as kind of like the first time that, in a long time at least, that there had been some kind of consensus pick on a great pop record and a, and a pop record really worth people's time. That's the moment that I remember it being like a if if you were to offer the opinion at a party that you didn't think that it was very good, people would like shout you down. People would say like, "Why do you think that? You're a snob." And that was the first time that I could remember that happening. Right, and it it became a kind of like edgy, kind of trendy thing to be like, "I love pop music. I don't love I don't love indie music. I love pop music." You know, like whatever. People swung so far in the opposite direction, almost in a matter of of months, maybe. So that was kind of like 2014. And I think around that time, you have some other interesting things happening, which is obviously December 2013, Beyonce releases her self-titled album, which probably has done kind of the most in the past decade to change people's minds about what a pop record can be, aside from 1989. And as Shad says, at this point... Pop was trendy, like trendier than usual. So-called poptimism was in full effect in critical circles. And pop wasn't just enjoying commercial success anymore. It began to get that crucial endorsement from critics in a more widespread way. The media landscape changed to support these acts, which in turn made everyone go, "Okay, I like this as well. This is Mark Holland. He's the managing director of EMI Music Australia, which is owned by Universal. But when we did this interview, he was working as the label's head of A&R. We look after a whole bunch of different acts in different genres, but uh, Troy Sivan, Empire of the Sun, The Avalanches, Alice in Wonderland, Greta Ray, Meg Mack, many, many others. 
So Mark says that attitude adjustment from critics was only partly their doing. In some ways, they had to change. I think it was a catch-22 in that kind of instance because I don't think any of those acts would have usually had a pitchfork review or a stereo gum would have been like, hey, this is interesting. Like, you know, I feel like their younger writers probably championed some of these younger artists as well. And maybe the more senior writers were like, oh, this is trash, but we have to be there because our audience is evolving to like this as well. I think everyone was very vocal about these songs that were sort of coming through and it was too hard to look away and just only look at things that you would originally like. So A&R, Mark's job, stands for Artists and Repertoire. If you're in A&R, your job is to sign up-and-coming artists and, once you've done that, kind of shepherd them through the production process. It can be a really influential position. And there's this cartoonishly evil music industry trope about A&R people that they crash in and ruin the artistic vision with their commercial mindset. For example, I have heard the phrase, that album was A&R'd to death. And there is a kernel of truth there, at least historically, particularly with some of those pop outfits of the early 2000s. Spice Girls, I am looking at you. Lovingly, but I am looking. And Mark says the Poptimist era changed everything. Labels definitely had to trust the newer wave of artists and what their art and craft was a lot more so. Previously, on a pop level, it was like, hey, I know who the top pop writers are. We'll get a song from them. This will be your first song and we're on our way. Whereas I think artists' true identity was being based on what they wanted to be as songwriters and we had to adapt and change to allow them to be that kind of, you know, true force behind what they were doing. And then also just working with other songwriters who had that same energy and kind of emotion to kind of bring to songs and teaming them up. So I think songwriting as well came a lot more collaborative, allowing the artist to be part of the songwriting process. And as is so often the case, the engine behind all of this change was this thing called the internet. It's impossible to overstate the extent to which Web 2.0 really upended the music industry. First, it was peer-to-peer streaming sites like Napster, LimeWire or Kazaa, which brought about on-demand, single song and low or no-cost distribution of music. They were ultimately succeeded by legitimate options like the iTunes Store. Then we had the advent of platforms like YouTube, SoundCloud and, who could forget, MySpace, which meant that artists didn't need the endorsement of a record label anymore, major or indie, in order to distribute their music. So you had this building wave of truly independent bedroom producers, further fueled by better access to home recording gear. People like Troy Sivan, who'd been a YouTuber since he was 12, years before Mark Holland went on to sign him. A friend had a daughter who actually just emailed and just said, hey, check this out. Like, you know, here's a kid, like, you know, just doing some some music on YouTube. I don't know what it is, but check it out. And And the daughter was how old? Probably around 10 years old at the time. So, you know, like pretty young, much younger than Troy. So Troy was 16, 17 at the time. And obviously Troy Sivan is one of the biggest pop artists in the world now. But without the YouTube slipstream and the random endorsement of that 10-year-old, there's a chance he could have remained undiscovered. And that's not a slight either. The pre-internet music industry was the furthest thing from a meritocracy. 
So in that sense, Troy Sivan is a perfect example of the way the online ecosystem has heavily shaped this pop wave. And at this point, pop develops something like a gravitational pull. It starts to draw other kinds of music closer to it. And Shard says this is the part where the historically rigid genre divides start to break down. It's almost like a bleeding of kind of like pop into the indie world and indie into the pop world, right? Because like Beyonce is making very kind of like alternative, almost avant-garde R&B, while someone from the indie world, let's say like Charlie XCX, is making pop music that sounds crazy and kind of samples Witch House or whatever. Also around that time, you have artists like Phoenix, The AES, Vampire Weekend, Grizzly Bear become kind of megastar pop acts. Like they, they start to be able to kind of headline festivals. And obviously at that time, there's all these really funny kind of like indie tabloid headlines like Solange took Beyonce and Jay-Z to a Grizzly Bear show. There was a climate of like this complete obliteration of barriers between indie culture and mainstream culture and I think it all just led to what we have now which is this kind of soup of everything where everything is pop and nothing is pop you know who doesn't like soup and while I'm overextending this metaphor Gemma Pike is basically the soup queen working as she does at Apple Music I'm Gemma Pike I am the senior editorial lead at Apple Music Australia and New Zealand Um, for the 10 years prior I worked in radio, uh, particularly at the ABC, and have um, a career in radio from before that, commercial and community radio as well. So, long time in music. No stranger to a microphone. No stranger to a mic. I'm feeling very comfortable right now. (laughs) Excellent. That's what we like. I really think that genres, like traditional genres, are going out the window and listening is becoming more mood and feelings based. People are seeking out things that, that are hitting particular vibes and, and, and particular emotions and, and, and feelings. One of the fastest trending songs at the moment in the world is this artist Joji and his song Glimpse of Us. Sometimes I look in her eyes and that's where I find a glimpse of and he is an Australian-Japanese rapper. Rapper slash R&B is kind of where he's, he's done most of his work. He's an ex-YouTuber as well on this really incredible record label called 88 Rising who work with emerging Asian artists to create those like pop culture crossovers. And he is just tearing up the charts at the moment with this soft highly emotional piano ballad. It's extraordinary because it's so outside of the norm as to what we would call a pop track. So genre tribalism is a thing of the past because you can just find the track that fits your mood within a matter of seconds. And that's because streaming platforms like Apple Music, Spotify being another, are the new distribution model. And that's pretty much how we got here from what I can gather. And when I set out to make this episode, I thought I was going to be telling essentially a feel-good story about how pop had overcome outdated and sexist traditions to become the behemoth it is today. And that is the story. But also, when is it ever that simple? I really like where we're at, you know, like I love so much pop music and I listen to so much of it all the time. I just, I do have that little little voice in the back of my head being like, 
this can't be the only thing, you know, and like not everything can be pop and not everything should be pop. This is Shard D'Souza again, who is, as I mentioned, a pop critic, but he's also a pop fan, which is why it caught me off guard when he made this point. As the world becomes more popified, I don't think that's necessarily a, a good thing. And I and I think everyone likes pop music now, but I, I do like to think about maybe what we lose when that happens. And I think not to get all kind of jargony or whatever, but capitalism, late capitalism is all about finding new markets and, you know, basically the same three giant mega corporations own and, and produce a lot of the pop music that we listen to now and that we accept as kind of like being this like broad spectrum of, of genreless vibe. And the three companies he's talking about are absolute giants. It's Warner, Universal and Sony. They essentially produce the kind of lion's share of, of pop music. I'm really appreciative that, that pop music has become a big thing. But 20 years ago, tastes were very segmented. And now a lot of people who years ago would have only listened to kind of music released on indie labels and alternative labels and stuff, listen to so much major label music. This is something I grapple with a lot as as a pop critic is that like, I believe we should take this music seriously. But I think a lot of music released by major labels is a product. Like I love that Lady Gaga record, Chromatica, but it also was used to promote Amazon, which, you know, is responsible for, like, so many human rights violations, not to kind of go down that weird rabbit hole, but it is very, like, this is corporate music tied up in corporate interests, and I think the major label machine has done a lot of great work in making people feel like it's not ethically queasy maybe to only listen to major label pop music and I think you know it is in these labels interests to not have an indie industry and obviously I I sound kind of silly being like it's ethically queasy to listen to Lady Gaga obviously I don't think that but I mean like it's the equivalent right of like Coles and Woolworths versus mum and pop shops right the major labels are Coles and Woolworths and it's in their interest to make sure there's no IGA is left. And, you know, it's the same with music as it is with supermarkets. Like, that would be a bad thing overall for, for everyone. He's right. That does sound bad. That said, a couple of minutes later, Shard also said this. <laughs> it's actually so funny. Right after I said all that stuff about Lady Gaga, I looked down and realised that I'm wearing one of my many Lady Gaga t-shirts. But, um, yeah, anyway. So take it all with a grain of salt, I guess. Although, I have to say, I did think this was a really interesting point. There is this larger, entirely serious anti-capitalist mood in the zeitgeist at the moment, and that is just happily and mostly uncritically coexisting with our love of major label pop. And that's not to say that those record company executives are sitting around villainously plotting ways to crush integrity in music. Far from it. And those artists, including the ones signed to Sony, Universal or Warner, are still the same artists who we love. Which is why Gemma Pike sees the major label world somewhat differently to Shard. Um, I'm going to be a little bit empathetic to the record labels here. I think that they're doing it harder than they ever had. And that's not to say that, you know, they didn't have a fairly big slice of the pie for a long time. But they are having to shift with the way that music is consumed pretty radically. You know, with artists and with listeners, 
it's really up to them. Like success is subjective. And so if the artist is feeling happy and supported and able to continue in any creative way they feel possible with their art, then let them be signed to those majors and and enjoy it. We're also seeing that with viral songs, that that virility, you know, songs being able to be shared far and wide before the artists have even, you know, stepped out of their bedroom door, you know, that removes that whole label A&R aspect altogether. A really excellent song can connect and be shared regardless of label being thrown and churned through any sort of like, you know, image update or marketing or promo This is a really exciting time to be listening to music because great songs shine through. They really cut through. Yeah, I I just think that we're in a brave new world and the labels are having to keep up and the listeners are finding what they want. It's kind of cool. So this is where we find ourselves. We're on the other side of a frankly seismic shift in the music industry, driven mostly by the death of the old distribution model at the hands of the internet and a very necessary rethink of some old prejudices. That shift has meant that pop, for better or worse, is now more dominant, not to mention richer and more complicated, than at any other point in history. And there is no going back to the world of guilty pleasures and rockism. To speak to my own experience, I remember feeling really put off when we started to get a little bit more pop music coming through some of the radio stations that I worked at and I was like, oh, we can't play this, it's too pop. And I've had to like really review the way that I listen to music as well and and what's good and am I limiting the way that I'm listening to it? Because you put your own blinders on it, right? View it through any lens you want, listen to it through any lens you want. And I was putting on this real lens of, no, I'm like this alternative person and I only listen to underground stuff and uh, would never listen to pop. And I I would hope to say that I've come around, but it did take a little bit of time for me to start opening up and embracing those different sounds. I have to say, I had a similar process go on where I kind of had this prejudice against, you know, anything that sounded too slick or syrupy Mm. um, in that pop sort of category more generally. And I had to go, wait, why do I think this? Like, where is this coming from? And a lot of it was just really old kind of rockism that I'd I'd internalised from being like an early teen. It was almost like a bit misogynistic. It was like, oh, it's silly because it's really girly and simpery. I think that was the unexamined thing that was underpinning a lot of it. And I wanted my music to sound more sardonic and Mm. knowing and and maybe a little bit more male on some level. Yeah. I don't think soul-searching is overstating it at all. Like I had to go, wait, why do I think this? And I couldn't really defend it in the end. And so I I approached pop music after that with a much more open mind and I'm so happy that I did. Thank you so much for summarising what I was trying to get out in (laughs) a much nicer way because that is absolutely bang on. It's a lot of um, identity and sense of self as well. Um, I remember being in high school and writing the names of all of these rock bands on my, you know, canvas 
tote or whatever. Yes, yep. And absolutely right. I would love to see what I wrote on that back now because I wonder if there were any women. I wonder if there were any people of colour. I wonder if there was anyone outside of like real meat and potatoes rock stuff mm. <laughs> because um, that's what I was listening to and that's what I identified with and that's what gave me a big part of my external and internal identity. And when you get things that shake that, you start to question yourself. But I am all the more richer for getting outside of that bubble, that self-imposed bubble, and listening to other things. Episode 10 of Schmite, guys, the last one in this season is a big one. It's about the highly vexed question of whether we're becoming more authentic online. We'll be talking about be real, ugly selfies, oversharing, and what is driving this generational commitment to chaos and imperfection. In the meantime, if you're missing us, there are eight other eps of Schmite, guys, you can hear on the ABC Listen app. This podcast was produced by Elsa Silberstein and Grant Walter. Grant Walter is also our sound engineer. And our theme music is by Russell Fitzgibbon. Thanks for being here. I'll catch you next week. <laughs>